Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Christian Coates-Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in Houston, Texas. His most recent book, published by Hearst, is Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. Among his many accomplishments, Christian is an acute and perceptive voice on Twitter, someone I follow very closely. So today we're going to look at some of his recent tweets and ask him to open them up and comment in a little more depth than 280 characters allows. Christian, great to have you back in the podcast. It's very nice to be back with you, Bill. Now, you tweeted about the passing of the Queen that it left, quote, a sense of dislocation. And I think that captures the way many of us are feeling. And, you know, it may be so, too, for Gulf state ruling families with their close affinity to the House of Windsor. But but I want to ask you about another dislocation. This past weekend saw the Ukrainians rout Putin's forces. And I wonder how mean authoritarians who viewed him as a pragmatic and bold warrior, not afraid to use force to get his way. I wonder how you think they might be viewing Vladimir Putin today. Well, I think that authoritarians in the Middle East, and especially in the Gulf, who may have been looking to Putin as a counterweight or some sort of counterbalance to the United States or to other Western countries might be beginning to reassess that prospect in light of the fact that much of the Western world, at least, has rallied against Putin since February. The United States, in particular, has worked closely with partners and allies to um, create a common response to the aggression. I think the lesson is that the aggression does not pay off. It doesn't produce results. And given the close defense and security links that the Russians had begun to build with countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, I think that those countries might be looking at those the viability of those links in the light of the likelihood that Russia will probably be under some sort of some form of sanctions for at least a long time to come and certainly in light of the sharp deterioration in relations between Russia and what in other cases are the closest security and defense partners the UAE and Saudi Arabia have, which is the United States. It may not be easy for them to continue to straddle and to balance these two very confrontational, very adversarial relationships. And I think the the poor level of performance on the battlefield, the fact that Russia's military has to some extent been shown up for what it is, and Putin's unwillingness, of course, to order mobilization of reserves and to sort of commit full on to, to what he's trying to achieve, I think all of that will perhaps give uh, countries in the Gulf a uh, pause for thought and perhaps uh, reassess where they stand on this conflict as it now enters some sort of new phase. Yes, uh, that that aura of being the shrewd, pragmatic operator has, has really taken a big dent, hasn't it? Well, it has. And I think that in Certainly from a Gulf perspective, the way that the U.S. left Afghanistan in 2021, the way that the U.S. seemed to ignore, abandon, not communicate with its allies and partners, and take a decision that was extremely unilateral and done for a very 
sort of cold, pragmatic reason that served U.S. interests. Now, I think the the sight of the Biden administration over the past seven months or eight months now, um, working very closely with this, our allies and partners, is is something that perhaps wasn't expected a year ago, and that uh, coming after the Gulf countries felt abandoned over the JCPOA with Iran as well. I think the fact that the administration now at least is much more willing to work with allies and partners and also hasn't yet re-entered the JCPOA, I think uh, if the Saudis and Emiratis were to look at it in a rational way, they would find they have a lot more to work with with the US than with with um, with Russia or perhaps with with other countries like China. But of course, I think they're also trying to keep all options open and to balance and uh, maintain relationships. Uh, again, they feel in their interest, not necessarily in the interest of the United States or anyone else. We don't know yet, coming back to Queen Elizabeth, the full list of foreign leaders who will be attending her funeral on 19th of September, that's Monday. But I wonder if Mohammed bin Salman will be among them as his rehabilitation continues apace in the West, might it not be the perfect opportunity to bring him back to Britain? But if he does show up, what will that say about this country's commitment, such as it is, to human rights in the Middle East? Well, that is a really good question. Clearly, it would certainly be an opportunity for Mohammed bin Salman to return to the United Kingdom after five years, five and a half years, since he was in London in May 20, in March 2018. Mohammed Salman was supposed to go to Glasgow for the climate change conference in October last year. It was trailed in advance that he would be attending and he didn't show up, which a lot of people thought was a bit odd, given that he had just hosted a major green energy initiative in Riyadh just the previous week. At the time, it was speculated that People around the Saudi crown prince might have been concerned about his lack of sovereign immunity as a head of state, which he isn't. Maybe people were looking at the precedent of the Pinochet case in 1998, when uh, there was also a sort of universal jurisdiction um, invoked by a Spanish judge, I think, to order the detention of uh, Augusto Pinochet, who was then held in the UK for, for months, I think, or maybe even a year. So I think there's a concern that Mohammed bin Salman might put himself in at risk. Now, having said that, since uh, last October, he has re-entered the European Union. He went to Greece and then to France at the end of July, the beginning of August. And so he clearly has managed and proven himself able to visit at least one jurisdiction, the European Union, that people thought might be risky after the Khashoggi murder. So it'll be fascinating to see whether he makes a determination as to whether he goes to another jurisdiction that might be considered a risk, which is the UK. Of course, the big one for him would be the US, and I suspect he wouldn't go back to the US until he was head of state. Of course, then he may not be invited, of course. But uh, but certainly the, the Queen's funeral would offer a, a sort of dignified ceremonial opportunity to represent Saudi Arabia, and I think it can be taken that if he doesn't come and if the Saudis are represented by another senior figure, that there's still a, a level of uh, concern in Riyadh that the risk level of entering the UK at this 
point is still maybe too high. And on the um, issue of human rights? Because of what you said about what it says about the UK and the commitment to human rights, well, don't forget, we don't just have a new sovereign, we have a new prime minister. And Liz Truss, uh, both as trade secretary and foreign secretary, is extremely keen and very vocally supportive of striking a free trade agreement with the, the GCC. Um, it's one of the centerpieces, I think, of the attempt to show that Britain remains open for business post-Brexit. And that um, this sort of global Britain is more than just a slogan, that there are countries um, and regions that are queuing up to sign free trade agreements. Uh, I think as, um, as Trade Secretary, she was touting agreements she'd signed with various uh, rather small countries around the world. And of course, the size of the GCC, so the Saudi and Emirati and Qatari markets, mean that it would be a much greater catch. And so I think Liz Truss has demonstrated and the previous government of Boris Johnson has demonstrated that uh, the current British government seems to be more interested in striking trade deals and uh, really focusing on the economic and commercial aspects of diplomacy rather than on any, any commitment to human rights. Mm, yes, it's, probably it's a case of same as it, as it ever was. Mm-hmm. Another tweet that caught my eye has to do with Donald Trump's buddy, Tom Barrack and his dealings on behalf of the UAE. Now, you wrote, must say the upcoming trial of Tom Barrack in the Eastern District of New York looks like being an absolute zinger for golf analysts. Now, can you remind us, uh, Christian, first of all, who Tom Barrack is and what he's been charged with? And then can you tell us why the trial will be a zinger? Well, Tom Barrack was um, and is a very high-profile New York-based financial uh, mogul. He was very close to Donald Trump. He was uh, the co-chair of Trump's inauguration committee in January 2017. And by many accounts, he was the person that introduced, for example, Jared Kushner to the Emiratis back in 2016, when there was still quite a lot of skepticism before the election within the UAE and across the Muslim world at, at Trump as a candidate in light of comments that Trump had made, for example, about calling for an immediate and total ban on all Muslims from entering the US. And so Barack was, who is himself uh, partly of Lebanese origin and has had decades of working in the Middle East and in the Gulf, Barack was very important, I think, in introducing Jared Kushner and people around Donald Trump to Emiratis and to Saudis and to uh, really creating those links that I think then positioned the Trump administration to initially take a very uh, strong line in support of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, especially in the first six months, and then culminating in the in Trump's initial support for the blockade of Qatar in June 2017. So Tom Barak has now been charged by the uh, federal prosecutors in the Eastern District of New York of acting as an undeclared foreign agent on behalf of the UAE, allegedly uh, working very closely with senior officials in the UAE, including the highest level of political leadership, to um, to get the Trump administration to uh, adopt a series of policies that were seen as extremely close to UAE interests. And so that, I think, is what will be fascinating to watch. The trial begins on September the 19th, expected to last for some time. And whether the government, the federal prosecution, can unearth 
documents that definitively prove that there is a smoking gun, that, that Tom Bavak was taking direction from from the UAE and that he was actually trying to swing the Trump administration into support of a, a set of policies that reflected UAE interests, not US interests. And so I think if, if that can be proven, it will go a step further than the Russia investigation because it would actually be a documented example of actual foreign interference. Whereas with the Russia case, it was always much more circumstantial. If it can be proven, it goes a step further. And I think also the fact that it involves one of the closest regional U.S. partners rather than an adversary, I think, would be of concern to uh, to officials in the U.S. And so for those reasons, I think it will be really interesting to see how it plays out, what evidence the government can produce, and whether, of course, that evidence is enough to uh, to make their case. And, and do you think that the UAE and the long-serving ambassador to Washington, uh, Yusuf Alateba, will be damaged by revelations that might emerge from the trial? In any, will they be damaged in any serious way, do you think? Well, I think that depends on what comes out. And in the indictment that was released in July 2021, there was reference to a, a sort of a four-step uh, plan that Iraq allegedly had or that the Emiratis had for Barack, which is divided up into sort of one month, six months, one year, four year sections. And it almost seemed like a, a shopping list of whatever was wanted from the administration. So if that could be produced, I would be fascinated to see what uh, what was on that list, what uh, whoever made it thought they were going to be getting. And I mean, the fact remains that Donald Trump's first overseas visit as president was to Saudi Arabia. And that two weeks later, when the blockade of Qatar began, even though the blockade involved three of the closest U.S. partners in the region, from a U.S. perspective, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, they were all U.S. partners, but, but Trump still picks sides. And so I think unpacking that, anything that goes deeper into what happened to get Trump to pick sides, to effectively throw the Qataris under the bus, at least temporarily, that would be interesting. And that will determine, I think, the level of embarrassment that may be felt in Washington by any officials representing the UAE is, is, is what comes out and how it comes out over the next few weeks. And Oteba, of course, is, is the most senior player now from the Middle East uh, ambassadorial ranks and one who's considered to be oftentimes at the top of his game. So, yeah, you're right. It'll be interesting to see if indeed he gets entangled in, in that trial. Um, moving on, I, I know from following you on Twitter, you're a big football fan and you've written a chapter in a soon-to-be-published book about Qatar's World Cup extravaganza. Can you give our listeners a sneak preview about what you have written? Uh, the book, by the way, is called The Geopolitical Economy of Sport, Power, Politics, Money and the State. It already sounds pretty fascinating to me. Yes, that's a book that's being put together by a couple of academics in the UK. And it's not just about Qatar. It's got about 25 different chapters on all aspects of uh, the very quickly changing geopolitics of sport, the fact that sport is becoming globalized, it's becoming dominated perhaps by countries and by companies and individuals that until recently were quite peripheral. I was really trying to look into a lot of different trajectories. And this, they're relatively short chapters, four to five, four or 5,000 words. I think the chapter I wrote was about Qatar. I was looking at why Qatar was bidding for the World Cup in the first place? Was it to do with 
nation branding? Was it more about trying to project soft power? Was it because of a love of football? Was it a combination of all three? And what did they think they were getting in 2010? Because if it was about soft power, well, there's been such a focus on migrant workers and the conditions facing workers in Qatar that you could argue that it actually hasn't worked. Uh, if it was about nation branding, yes, it succeeded, but arguably other things like Qatar's policy, diplomacy in Afghanistan, or the fact that Qatar is now seen as kind of Europe's uh, savior and potential savior longer term in terms of energy could be more important. So we'll try to unpack some of the motivations that the Qataris thought they were going to get in 2010. And then looking at here we are in 2022, 12 years later, did they in fact uh, materialize? Yeah, and, and, and you, you have touched on the migrant uh, labor issue. Uh, it's interesting, you amongst others have taken umbrage with the BBC about a misleading headline that said alcohol was illegal in Qatar. It isn't, but uh, but it does strike me that, that, in fact, the more important story is what you've already touched on, which is the uh, exploitation of these workers as they build these extraordinary stadiums. And, you know, have they gotten away with it? Well, I think the focus of the media in the UK, in Scandinavia, in Germany, the Netherlands, is, has continued and will continue to be laser-like focused on the issue of migrant workers. And I think that will probably continue right up until the tournament. The only question then is, once the football actually begins, once there's a, something to talk about on the field, on the pitch, you know, will that then change? I'm not entirely sure it will. So, and I, I think the, the focus has been so intense and the scrutiny has been so consistent that I don't, it's not that they haven't gotten away with it. I mean, the Qataris have made some reforms, which in a sort of regional context have been quite uh, far-reaching. I think that the challenge that Qataris have had is that a lot of the international, or at least the lot of the European media attention doesn't seem to have uh, bought into those reforms. And what you may see is journalists who then go to Qatar for the World Cup in November and December, then trying to go off on their own to go and interview, to go to labor camps, and then potentially getting themselves into trouble and then becoming the centre of further stories. I mean, there's already been, I think, three Norwegian journalists who are detained at the end of 2021 for sort of going off and doing their own uh, research and trying to do their own reporting. And so if that were to happen during the World Cup, you could easily see a scenario where that becomes the main story. And again, it would be extremely negative from a sort of cutting point of view if, if that were to be the case. Mm, yeah, good point. Um, finally, I want to ask you about a piece you wrote for the Italian energy giants, Inis, online mag, as part of a collection on the geopolitics of energy. You got a Twitter plug from our colleague uh, Cinzia Bianco, who also wrote a piece uh, in the same collection. Given all that's been going on with energy prices, now that Gulf oil producers are playing this fence-sitting game vis-a-vis -vis the war in Ukraine, although as you pointed out earlier in our podcast, it may be a little uneasy on the fence right now. Tell us why you titled your piece, The Gulf Looks East. Well, I think it's because the piece is about more than just the current dynamic, the current situation. It's the, over a period of almost more than two decades, certainly since the turn of the millennium, uh, we have seen a gradual shift eastward in terms of energy and economic interdependencies in all Gulf states, the, uh, the main markets now for oil and gas in the Gulf are in Asia. 
um, the sort of amount of energy going west to to Europe, or perhaps not so much to Europe these days, that's going to increase, especially in Qatar. But the United States has has been in, uh, in decline. So I think there's a longer term shift towards uh, focusing on Asia. I think what has happened is that there has been a growing gap between the security and defense links which remain westward focused, although again we've spoken about Russian relationships in that field which have have clearly been there, but you still have this sort of western focused political military relationships, but then these eastern focused energy and economic ones, and I think that gap is is growing and uh, will itself require some balancing. And I think that was easier to balance in a world where there wasn't this heavily adversarial confrontation between, well, kind of Russia and perhaps China on the one side and much of the Western world on the other. In a much more confrontational and adversarial world, I think it becomes more difficult to to balance those kind of diverging uh, trajectories. But certainly in terms of looking east, I think that's something that's in Gulf capitals they've been doing for at least 20 years, some more than others. And I think they've made the calculation that the 21st century, the future is, uh, you know, the future is Asian in terms of centers of economic growth, of a, of a new economic opportunity and partnership, of uh, creating linkages that go well beyond uh, energy, that encompass other forms of economic cooperation and partnership. And I think this is just part and parcel of that. Now, what we may see is a shift back to some extent to Europe, at least in energy, especially for Qatar. Once the uh, Qatari natural gas comes fully on the stream, the expansion from 2025 to 2027. But I think that's not going to reverse the, the shift towards Asia. It may slow it down. It may be a sort of side, side sort of sidebar to it. But I think the general direction is that... Uh, the links with Asian partners will probably continue to grow for at least a foreseeable future, especially if in the Western, Europe and in the United States or North America, you see much more pressure for an energy transition and much more pressure on, say, climate politics. I think then also that shift will become more pronounced as well. So so if that's the case, then it becomes really what you're suggesting is pretty much a permanent shift. I'm wondering what the geopolitical implications are. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because one of the things that Gulf leaders, especially in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi, couldn't, couldn't fathom was when President Obama said he referred to a pivot to Asia in about 2008, 2009, when he first came in, maybe 2010. And for them, for the Gulf leaders, the term pivot to Asia seemed to encapsulate their sense of being abandoned by the US. They couldn't, they couldn't rely on the US anymore. Now, there were a whole bunch of issues within that. The US, initial US support for, for the um, change of leadership in Egypt in 2011, um, US negotiations, at least in secret initially, with Iran, and then with the five P five plus one bypassing the Gulf countries plus Israel for the for the JCPOA. But the pivot to Asia as a term just seemed to encapsulate everything they didn't like about the US under Obama and now by extension under Biden perhaps. The fact that US seemed to be turning away, even though the pivot to Asia was never meant to be a pivot away from the Middle East, 
in US terms, it was seen as a pivot away from Europe. It was reducing the forces in Europe and redeploying sort of focus of US policy towards Asia. Now, clearly the Russian invasion of Ukraine has probably put pay to that, at least for the time being. But what was ironic was at the same time that they decried the US pivot to Asia, the Gulf countries were doing the same thing. They were pivoting to Asia. And they've been pivoting to Asia in a much greater and more sustained way for for many years. And so on the one hand, it became shorthand for everything they didn't seem to like about Obama. But actually, it's also reflective of just a pragmatic calculation of the 21st century, the sort of main drivers of economic growth probably will be in Asia, rather than, say, in Europe or, or sort of more traditional centers as they were in the 20th century. And so there was always that sort of tension there between what they said they didn't like with the U.S. doing it, but of course they were the ones doing it themselves. Well, Christian, I asked you to expand on the 280 characters that are available on Twitter, and you certainly have done that, so I I thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for having me back. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in Houston, Texas. His most recent book, published by Hearst, is Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, It's been listened to over 90,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, and other platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, contributors like Christian. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you are a student or academic, check if your university library has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access the Digest for free. And if not, ask your library to consider getting one. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.